If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 as we continue our study through the epistles of John. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 28 down through chapter 3, verse 3 this morning. And if you're with us last week, you'll know that when we were studying that last passage that we, that we finished up with last week, John talks an awful lot about abiding in that passage. As a matter of fact, that's the whole imperative of the entire section is that we would abide in the two things that he tells us are there that the Lord has given us to safeguard us against the work of the Antichrist that he says or have already come into the world and continue to exist in the world in order to deceive us. Those two safeguards are the word of God that he has given us, the truth of God's word, and also the abiding of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit and the word of God work together because the Spirit of God is that which ultimately authored the word to begin with, but he is the one who brings us and helps us to understand the truth of God's word and then helps us to apply that word into our lives. And so he tells us twice in that last passage, one was, a, one was a, an actual imperative, the other was an implied imperative that says abide in those things. Abide in the truth of the word of God, let it abide in you and abide in the Holy Spirit and the anointing that you have with him. Now, in a passage today, beginning in verse 28 and working our way through the rest of it, he's going to come back to that same issue of abiding again. Matter of fact, he's going to issue another command that says to abide in him, that is, abide in Christ. But in this passage, he's actually going to give us some reasonings for that. He's going to undergird that command with some, some reasons why. He's going to tell us what our motivation should be for abiding in Christ. And in fact, that's why I've entitled today's sermon, why abide? And, and so this week has been kind of interesting to me because I've kind of gone back and looked at, and, and did a little studying on motivation. And really what I began to ask myself is, what are the things that motivate me in my life? And, and, and quite frankly, how do I motivate others that I have the opportunity to lead and to, and to care for? And, and, and so it made me think about Charlie. He's my boy. He's four. And, you know, his motivations are fairly simple and straightforward. As a matter of fact, yesterday, yesterday I had to look at him right in his eye, and I had to look at him and say, now, Charlie, let me tell you something. This is your last warning. There won't be another one. If you do what you just did, again, you're going to get a spanking. Now, let me also say to you that if you're one of those who doesn't think that a good parent, a good parent is someone who doesn't spank their children, let me just go ahead and tell you right up front, I'm not a good parent then. You're not going to like me. But I know what motivates my son. I know, I know that when he recognizes that when he thinks through the fact that there's something that his daddy or his mama has told him not to do, there's certain ways that we can motivate him. And the, the thought, the desire to stay away from a spanking is something that helps channel him in the right direction. It's particularly at four years old. Now, but that's not the only thing that motivates Charlie. He's got other things that motivate him, like ice cream. Ice, who doesn't get motivated by ice cream, actually? But... The ice cream motivates him because sometimes I can say, hey, hey, buddy, listen, let's get, if you could get your toys put up and get your shoes on, if you can get all that put together, listen, we'll go get some ice cream. And man, you have never seen toys find their homes faster than when you offer him something along those lines. Here's what I want you to know. Those things are what we call extrinsic motivators. Those are things that come from outside of us to motivate us. They are extrinsic. They are external. They are, oftentimes we refer to those things as like being the carrot and the stick. 
You've heard that analogy before? If, if someone is, is trying to lead a horse somewhere, they will use a carrot to put out in front of the horse because that, the thought of that carrot makes the horse move forward. But sometimes the carrot loses it a little bit or maybe the horse loses sight of the carrot and so the stick comes behind to, 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 to kind of prod the horse to continue moving. So the carrot and the stick, they are extrinsic motivators that help move us and channel us toward the direction that we need to go. Here's the thing. I don't want Charlie to always have to be motivated by a carrot or a stick. I don't want his motivations, his, his incentives to come from external sources. As a matter of fact, studies show us that those things actually lose their effectiveness over time. You want to know why? Because they're external. What we understand and what we know about ourselves is true is that re the real motivation, the motivation that will help keep us burrowing through difficult times in our lives, motivators that will help us continue to persevere and to endure, those are things that actually come from within us. They're called intrinsic motivators. Now, my father is here this morning. He's sitting right back there. You can wave at him in case they don't know who you are. My dad was one who believed in the carrot, but he really believed in the stick growing up too. He knew that I was a lot like Charlie. I needed to have a little bit of both and probably a lot of one and needed some more of the other to help me in certain areas. But this is something that my dad also knew. He knew that as I got older, just as I said before, those external motivators really didn't have as much. And, and, and you know, when your son is, is all the way on the other side of the world away from you, there's not a lot of extrinsic motivators that you can put before him. That's why I told you this before. Every letter that I ever received from my dad that he wrote to me when I was in the Navy, he finished it off with a handwritten note at the bottom of it that said this, remember who you are and whose you are. Dad doesn't have a degree in psychology, but he knew his son. And he knew that if he could get his son to stop, to pause, and to reflect on those things, you remember who you are, and you remember whose you are. He would go a long way toward that intrinsic motivation that would actually be that which would help me to live a life that was congruent with my identity. What I want you to know this morning is that's exactly what John is going to tell us in our text today. We're going to read this passage in just a moment, and I want you to consider the fact that John is telling us that as Christians, we are to behave in a certain way. We're to live a certain way. And the reason that we do that, the motivating factors behind that is not necessarily some extrinsic things, though we know that they're there, but what he's going to point us to is the intrinsic things, the things on the inside of us that are going to move us and push us and motivate us. As a matter of fact, I want to state for you my sermon in a sentence up front this morning so that it will help us as we move through this passage. And my sermon in a sentence this morning is this. As Christians, our motivation for living holy lives rests in who we are now and like whom we shall become. That's where our motivations is. It's in who we are now and in like whom we shall become. Let's hear the word of God this morning. Beginning in verse 28 of chapter 2 of 1 John, the Bible says this, And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. 
But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth of it and for what it reveals about us and tells us about who we are. And I pray today that as we're in this room, and Lord, we know that some of us are hot. We realize the AC unit's giving us trouble this morning. And Lord, we're probably tired from this past week. Some of us are facing things that are coming up. There's all kinds of reasons, Lord, that are out there that we might be able to have our minds drift. But I pray that by your power of your Holy Spirit, you might help us concentrate and keep focused for just a short while this morning around your word that we might leave here as people who are changed by the power of the word working through us and your Holy Spirit bringing us into an understanding of it, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in this passage, you see that John begins the same way he's begun before. He calls them his little children. And what I want you to know, it's a diminutive term that he uses there, but he's not being disrespectful at all. It's, it's, it's really a term of endearment that he's using. It's just like this grandfatherly figure, which really he would have been at that time. He was an old man. He was probably up in his 80s, perhaps even a little older by the time that he wrote this epistle. And he's writing it to the people of the churches. And he says, listen, my little children. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of, of, of love and affection. And in that tenderness of that affection that he writes them, he tells them this. He says, listen, abide in me. Abide in, in not in me, but in him. Abide in Christ Remain tied, remain connected to Jesus. Now, this is a command, as we saw, that, that it's already a carryover from the previous section where, where he said to abide on two different occasions, but now he's saying it again. And he's saying abide in him. And, and what we know is this is not something new. As a matter of fact, everything that John tells us in many ways is rooted back in something that Jesus had said. For example, in John chapter 15, verses 4 through 10, listen to what Jesus said. He says, abide in me, as the, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I have also loved you, so abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Now, we don't have to be English majors to hear how often Jesus uses that word, abide. Abide, abide, abide. As a matter of fact, he uses that word 10 times in seven verses. So we can't deny the fact that Jesus was the one who came up with the whole understanding of we need to remain connected to him. We need to remain fused to him. There needs to be something that's constantly there that we're connected together. And that, that tells us that when John writes about this here in 1 John, he's not coming up with this command on his own. He's just repeating what Jesus had said. And he tells us that we are to abide in him. And brothers and sisters, let me say this to you. The words of Christ that I've just read for you, as well as the, 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 the command of John and the rest of the scriptures, they attest that a true believer, one who is a true Christian, one who has assurance that they have been saved, that that assurance is directly linked to our abiding in Christ. 
It is linked to an active and dependent relationship with Him that is reflected through our obedience to His Word. Quite frankly, when I talk to people about becoming members of this church, and when I, even if I just testify, or we just having conversations with folks, and I start asking them and talking to them about their relationship with Christ, I'm always very interested in how they came to faith in Christ. I love to hear that they, you know, maybe it's a VBS like we had here this last week, that someone came to know Christ as a result of that evangelistic outreach of the church. I love to hear that. I love to hear how maybe they came as a result of a, some other, maybe a revival service or some other crusade, or, or it just came through the, the, the fact that their parents shared the, shared the, the Bible with them at nights, and, and ultimately it became, I love to hear how people came to know the Lord. But you know what I'm equally interested in hearing? What's the Lord doing in their lives today? How's God working in their hearts right now? What's their relationship with Christ today as a result of what took place sometimes years and years before? Because you see, that gives evidence of the fact that there's an abiding that's taking place. That gives a, evidence of the connectivity that we continue to have with the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit because of that. And so there's a few things that I want you to see. That when, when, when John says here that we are to abide in Christ what he's telling us is, is that we are to remain connected to him. I, I like what Greg Allen has written. He says, John's whole letter is, is showing us that the test of saving relationship with God isn't just whether or not we prayed a prayer in the past, but whether or not we follow that initial prayer up by abiding in Christ as an ongoing pattern of life in the present. Now, there's a couple of phrases in this text throughout the verses I read that kind of illustrate that and expand on that a little bit. Down in verse 29, notice that, that John, according there, he, he talks about abiding in Christ in verse 28. In verse 29, he follows that up and he says that those who abide in Christ is, is connected to those who practice righteousness. The practicing of righteousness. In other words, to abide in Christ means it involves doing what is right. Doing right things. Living a morally upright life. If you look down a little bit further, down to verse 3 of chapter 3. You'll notice that he talks about those who purify themselves. A man who is connected to Christ purifies himself. John Stott says that primarily the understanding of purity here is defined by primarily being free from moral stain. So abiding in Christ or remaining in him as a consistent pattern of our lives, it will be evidenced by the fruit that we bear in our lives and that, that will be lives that practice righteousness. It will be lives that, that are pure and free from moral stain. It will be lives that are characterized by personal holiness and obedience to God's Word. So that's what it, it means, at least to a, to a, from a, from a, a 20,000 feet perspective, that's what it means to abide in Christ. But I want you to know that John follows that command up with a clause that tells us why it's necessary. Because in verse 28 he says, Abide in Him, why? Because that when He appears, when He, that is Christ, appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him in his coming. Remember, John's, John's on, on his radar screen is the fact that the world is passing away in the lust thereof. That's verse 17. Verse 18, he says, we're in the last hour. He's, he's got it in his, he's, his, it's on his mind, the fact that, that the sun is setting on the world that's overruled by Satan is in direct opposition to God. But he's also got on his mind that the sun has already risen in Christ for the coming kingdom of God and that we're pursuing and pushing toward that. But in this meantime, what he wants us to know is, he says that there is a day that's coming when Jesus will reappear. Right now, Jesus is not visible to us. 
Though He is with us spiritually, we do not see Him with our eyes. But John says, one day He will appear. We will see Him again. And he talks about that as being the, the coming of Christ. That's the, the Greek word for parousia. It's a word that means second coming. It means that when he returns in his power and his glory. And what John says is when that day comes, we need to be people who are confident. We're, we're not those who are, who are fearful of that day. We need to be those who are not ashamed at his coming. In other words, we don't shrink back from him when he shows up. They say, that, they say that confession is good for the soul. So here goes. I've not always been the well-mannered, good-behaved, well-behaved guy that you might think of me to be. You can ask pretty much a lot of my teachers in elementary school, and they will affirm that. One time, there, I remember being in elementary school, and we were, uh, we were in class, and, and the teacher, she was actually a preacher's wife, by the way, and this was, I think, fifth grade, and fourth grade, and, and she had given us a reading assignment. And she says, I've got some work to go take care of down at the office, and I want you to read this chapter in your book, and when I get back, we are going to have a quiz on it. And she said that as the door closed behind her, and she exited out the room. Now, there were those in the class who got and studied, they opened their books up to the right chapter, and they began to read it, and, you know, the rest of us, the thought of the teacher not being in the room was not a reason to sit down and read. That's when the, that's when the paper balls started coming out and that's when the thumping on the back of the head started happening and the loud noises began to take place. But we knew that she was coming back, so we sent a sentry. We posted a guy up at the door who could look out the window and it was his job to tell us when the teacher was coming back down the hallway. And sure enough, a little bit later, he says, here she comes. And so we all run back to our desks and we get our books out like we're doing it. And mine was probably upside down at that point. And we're getting back at the desk and we're thinking to ourselves, we knew she was coming back, but we're really hoping that she was kidding about the quiz. She wasn't kidding about the quiz. And she walked down the rows and she put those quizzes on our paper or on our desks. And there were two types of people in the room at that point. There were those who didn't care that she was giving them a quiz because they had read the material and they were ready and they were prepared because they'd been obedient. And then there were the rest of us. The rest of us who were afraid of what kind of grade we were going to get and we were, as John says, shrinking back from that test because we were ashamed of what we had done. John tells us that one day Christ will appear and when he does, there will be two types of folks. Those for whom his coming strikes fear in their hearts and they shrink back from him. And those who will be confident and have no fear because they have nothing to hide. And John tells us in order for us to find ourselves in that second category, we must remain connected. We must, we must be one who abides in Christ. In fact, the first point that I want you to see this morning is this. First point on your outline today is this. Abiding in Christ involves living a life of personal holiness and obedience that is free from fear and has nothing to hide. That's what it means to abide in Christ. Live lives of holiness, lives of, of obedience that is free from fear and has nothing to hide. Now that in and of itself ought to be a great motivator just for that. Just so that we can live that way would be such a great relief for us but but John doesn't stop there 
In fact, he's concerned with providing us those intrinsic motivators that we talked about earlier. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 29. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that, that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. What John reminds his readers of and what he reminds us of is the truth about God. The truth about his very nature, that he is one who does, he is a righteous God. That's who he is in his very nature. And what he says is, those who are born of him, those who, who, who come from him, well, they will do righteous things as well. They will practice righteousness. Now, we have to ask the question here. Does that mean that, that we become his children because we do righteous things? Is that what John is saying? Is he saying that, that our, our identity in Christ actually happens as a result of our practicing righteousness? No. The Bible says that we don't have anything that we can boast in work-wise. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. We're not saved by our righteous works. But what he is saying is because we have been born of God, because Christ is our Savior, because we've been connected to him, listen, Righteous deeds are going to follow. We will practice righteousness as a result of it. And that, John's very clear about that. He goes on down in verses 7 and 8, down in verse 10. He says, you want to know that you can check to see who your father is? I'm paraphrasing. Look to see how you live. Because you will behave like your father. And in verse 10 he says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. This, there's, no, there's no wiggle room with John. He's very clear as regard to who we are and what, how we are to live. So the first thing that John communicates to us is that he tells us that we are to love, we are to, to act like the one for whom we are. And then down in verse, in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says this. He says, look or behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that he, we should be called the children of God. The literal translation of that verse says this, stop and look and see. What country does love like this come from? Friends, you know what, what's very important for a Christian to do on a continual basis in their life? Is to stop and just consider the width and the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God that is extended to sinners just like you and me, that God in His infinite matchless grace would, would send His eternal, creative, loving, sinless, holy Son to come here to die on a cross in the place of a sinner like me. Friend, the gospel that saves you is the same gospel that you need to contemplate regularly in your life. Behold, what, what kind of country does love like that come from? Because it's not the kind of love that we see every day in our lives. But it's the kind of love that God has displayed toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And John says, think about that. Stop for a while. Contemplate it. There's the old hymn. The love of God is greater far. In the words of that hymn, the last verse says, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. 
Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels song. Friends, you and I ought to stop our busy lives on a regular basis and just behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we, that I, should be called the Son of God, a child of God. And you want to know why that's important? Because when you recognize what your identity is in Christ, that then begins to motivate how you live. And that's exactly what, Paul, what John is trying to get across. When you contemplate who you are and the love that has been shown to you, second point on your outline this morning is this. The motivation for a true believer to abide in Christ and to behave like him comes from the fact that he or she has been born of him and belongs to him. Friend, do you realize this? That When you say that you're a child of God, do you know what that means? It means that you belong to him and he belongs to you. That ought to excite you just right there to think that I belong to God, but he belongs to me. We are connected. And because that's the case, then that ought to motivate me. That ought to help me understand how I am to live as a result of it. I love what J. Gresham Machen has written in his classic work, Christianity and Liberalism, because what he wants us to understand is, is that the imperative for how we live is rooted in the indicative of what God has revealed in his text. And that's what Machen writes. He writes that religious liberalism appeals to man's will while Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. We might even say it a different way. And that is our gospel obligations must be based upon gospel declarations. And the declaration is this, that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. And as a result of that, if you are a true believer, then your obligation is to live as a result of what you have learned that he has told you about himself. And that's what John is saying here. Brothers and sisters, if we lose sight of our identity in Christ we will run afoul every time. If we try to find our identity in, in the clothes that we wear or the friends that we have or the denomination that we're a part of or the groups that we attach ourselves to, if our identity is rooted in anything other than we are children of God, then ultimately we will run afoul and we will find ourselves on shaky foundation. So let me ask you this morning, does your identity determine your behavior? To quote Greg Allen again, he says, Do you realize that every time you sin, you are behaving in a contradiction to your true identity? That you are behaving like you are still part of the world system from out of which God has saved you. That you are behaving like someone else's child. And then he asked this question, How inappropriate to behave that way when in reality you are a child of God by His grace? That's our first motivation, to recognize that we have been born of him and that we belong to him. But notice he's not done because the second motivation, the second point, point B under number two is this morning is this. The motivation for a true believer to abide in Christ and behave like him comes from the fact that he or she will ultimately become like him. Did you catch that from that text? Listen, we have to recognize who we are today, but who we are today is not who we're going to be in the future. God has begun a great work in our lives. He's begun, he's wrought a, a great work in our hearts, but we are in process. We are in the process of being sanctified. That's exactly what Paul writes about in Romans 8. 
Verse 28 says, All things work together for the good of them who love God and are called according to His purpose. But then he goes on to say, But God is in the process of transforming us into the image of His Son. We have been predestined to that. And those whom He predestined, He also justified. And those He justified, He also sanctified. And those He sanctified, He also will glorify. And that glorification process, that process of becoming like Jesus, is exactly what John refers to here. We don't know what that's going to be like. We don't know what all that's going to look like, but this is what we do know. One day we will be like Him. When we see Him as He is. That's why Paul writes what he does in Philippians 3. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is even able to subdue all things to Himself. And then he follows that up with this. He says, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, Stand fast in the Lord, beloved. That's exactly what John is saying. Stand fast. Abide in Him. Continue to remain in Him. Why? Because you may be who you are today. And God has saved you and you are His child. But the hope that we have is that one day we're going to be like Him. And so the truth is, behave like that now. Live like that now. Allow that to be the motivation that carries you through life now, when you face the obstacles, when you face the temptations, when you face the struggles that you are, we need to remember who we are and like whom we shall become. And that brings me back to my sermon in a sentence this morning. Because you see, as Christians, our motivation for living holy lives rests in who we are now and like whom we shall become. John concludes this passage this way. He says, everyone who has this hope in him, this hope in Christ, he purifies himself just as Christ is pure. I wonder, do you have that hope today? Is that your hope? Do you live each day in humble recognition that Jesus Christ died in your place? That he suffered the wrath of God against sin as your substitute so that you might be set free from the power and from the penalty of sin. Friend, if you have believed that, if you have truly trusted in that and placed your faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus and the scriptures testify and the Spirit of God testifies that you truly have the hope of the gospel in you. And listen, if you have the hope of the gospel in you, then the scriptures say that you will seek to live a holy life that obeys God's word. It doesn't mean that you're going to live a perfect, sinless life. It doesn't mean that as we walk through this Life, our feet will not get dusty. They will. But it does mean that you will progressively repent of the sin that is in your life and that you will seek increasingly to live a life that pleases God. Why? Because you've been born of Him. You belong to Him. And one day you will be like Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.